Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Annie McManus. Welcome to Changes. As you can hear, I still have a little bit of Glastonbury left in my voice. It is still there. It is Wednesday. I got back in the middle of the night on Sunday. Uh, So technically I should be recovered, but I'm not. And that is a measure of how much fun I had in those fields. Talking of fields, this week's guest is someone who spends, I would say, 85% of her day in fields. But it wasn't always like that for her. Her name is Zoe Colville otherwise known as the Chief Shepherdess on Instagram. Zoe started out her career as a hairstylist in a salon in Soho in London. Cocktails, going to bars after every shift, living the London life completely. Now she is a shepherdess. How did that happen? What was the love affair that involved her leaving London life and moving to Kent and helping to birth lambs in fields? How does someone go from being a vegetarian to watching lambs be killed in abattoirs? All of these extreme changes explained in today's episode and more. I hope you enjoy it. If you've ever wanted to completely turn your life around, to change how you work, where you work, what your lifestyle is, then this is definitely the episode for you. I hope that you find it inspiring. Ultimately, this is a story of an extreme life change and a roller coaster love story. So, Zoe Colville, the Chief Shepherdess, let's get into it. Zoe, welcome. Would you mind beginning this conversation by telling me your typical working day? Wake up with the sun. Coffee, (laughs) firstly. Uh, And then usually we'll have an argument because I'm taking too long to get ready. We'll get into the truck and drive to the farm because we don't live on the farm. First thing first, you've got to check everything's alive. So we will just, everything that's at the base farm, we just have a walk around, let the dog stretch her legs. And we will then check everyone's got food and water. That's like top. And because we rent grazing land, grass, all around the county, we then have to go around and check the same on every single. And then once we've done that, we can work out what's the best plan of action. Um, And then, yeah, when it gets dark, we go home. What's the kind of biggest change you're going through right now, would you say, in your life? Learning to not be in control. Mm. So when I was a hairdresser and my whole professional life, everything was planned to an inch. And now I kind of, I can't plan for anything. And at the moment... We move our sheep every 48 hours to keep them on fresh, new grass. And we're kind of getting to the point now where the grass isn't growing. We haven't had rain for a month. There's absolutely nothing I can do. And, you know, before too long, the sheep are going to get hungry. But there's nothing. And that is, yeah, something that does not come natural. I I like to plan my life. When you mention we, tell us who you mean. 
Uh, we is myself and my behalf. He's Chris. He is the driving force behind all the changes that I've seen in my life in the past 10 years. We actually knew each other when we were younger. He would be at house parties and I would be at house parties. He'd be like a wildfire, like he'd just be, no one could control him and he would just do anything that he wanted just because he felt like it. We're not really not compatible in that sense. And I was living in London and he Facebook messaged me pissed saying that he thought I was fit and I kind of thought oh my god it's that guy again (laughs) um and he basically badgered me for probably about two weeks I was not open for dating but I kind of gave in I thought it would be an easier life to just give him this date which when I look back I think oh my god but I just kind of like well come come to London then if yeah. you want to if you want to come come up come up and he was obviously looking forward to it and I just kind of I was really nervous and I didn't know why I was nervous I was living in Stoke Newington we had a really nice day I went outside for a fag and I just remember just all the alcohol I drank that whole time just smacking me in the face and I just said to him you have to take me home you have to take me home And he did take me home. And I'd said to him, stay in that room. Don't follow me. And that was probably um, his personality coming out and being caring. He kind of came downstairs with a glass of water. And he told me that I looked fit while I was (laughs) vomiting. Yeah, he didn't go home the next day. And yeah, I still wasn't sure if anything would happen. But because he was from where I was from... Mm. he kind of felt quite safe obviously I'd known him before I knew he wasn't a serial killer I guess and (laughs) I kind of was quite quite at peace with that I would say the rest is history but it took a long time well he's just proposed hasn't he he has just proposed he's just proposed so there you go so yeah I guess the rest is history but I do believe that even if we don't spend the rest of our days together yeah. We're, we're exactly where we needed to be with each other through the past 10 years. And if yeah. it were to end tomorrow, we'd be better, better off for meeting each other. And I think that's quite a nice place to be. Let's go back to who you were when he was trying to get in your DMs on Facebook. Yeah. And what life was like for you and what you were doing back then. Yeah. So you would have been what, what age were you, early 20s or something? Yeah, so I, I, moved, I moved to London at 18. Right. Where I'm from is is called Maidstone. So it's a little market town, basically. In Kent, yeah. In Kent. I'd been stuck at this all-girls school and I kind of got to 16, 17 and they were talking about careers and I really wanted to be a hairdresser. I really wanted to be a hairdresser. And where did that come from, do you think? I think I liked getting my hair cut. I think it's as basic as... I liked the relationship between the hairdresser and the client. I think that's what it is. It felt like you were in a therapy session. And I think that's what I liked. I liked that really weird dynamic of she or he's making you look pretty. But at the same time, you're telling them your, you know, your boyfriend at the age of 14 wants to take it to the next step and you're not ready. I quite liked that kind of they're your friend, but that's what I wanted to do. And what did your mum and dad think of you wanting to be a hairdresser? 
Oh, they just want me to be happy. I was one of those girls that I had a lot of fads. So they probably right. thought maybe me being a hairdresser was a fad. And then I was going to do A-levels and I decided I wanted to be a therapist. So I was doing psychology. So they, they kind of just let me roll with it and kind of make my own mistakes. So when you met your fiancé, you were working in Beak Street, so, right? Yeah. yeah. And how long had you been hairdressing then? Four years, three, four years. Okay. So you were fully ensconced in London life. Yep. Uh, yeah, I met him when I was in Stoke Newington. I was split between working in Big Street and they had a, a Shoreditch salon, salon as well. So I split between those two salons. You know, I started work at 11am and I'd finish at 8pm. But I would always eat dinner out after work and I would always have drinks after work. Yeah. Like, you never finished your client and commuted home. That's just not how it happened and anyone that works in London kind of it's just a different world your your last client they would bring you a raspberry mojito to the hair appointment and then you would have a drink together and cut the hair and that kind of lifestyle was very normal yeah and I'd eased into it over the years so then when I met Chris and you know he was from back home and you have to go into the centre of Maystone to catch you know to get dinner or, you know, there was like the local village pub and that's it. And they definitely didn't serve a raspberry mojito. <laughs> when I come home to see him, it was very much like it was home, but it I was different. Yeah. It was really weird. I'd, I felt like I was really myself when I, when I lived in London. And I thought I suffered from anxiety, yeah. but I thought I was just a nervous worrier. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't realise that there is something you can do about it so I just kind of lived every day with I was absolutely terrified of getting the tube really but I would be yeah because one time someone projectile literally projectile vomited because they were hung over all over my feet in flip-flops on the tube on the tube oh, yeah dear. and yeah. I the smell I couldn't yeah. get away it was packed yeah. the smell I had to wait to the next stop to get off so then every time I got the tube, I would be eyeballing every single person. Do they look a bit pale? Do they look a bit sweaty? Oh, well, yeah, of course they're sweaty because they're on the tube. Of course they're oh. pale because everyone drinks every night of the week and yeah. they're hungover, all of these things. Um, but I just lived with it. And, you know, I was funny about germs and God knows what else, but I just lived with it. And then when I came home to Kent, to Maystone of a weekend to see Chris, I kind of like, well, it's not as busy here, so there's not many germs, and I don't have to get the tube. And although everything felt a lot harder work, yeah. I did feel a lot calmer. So you're drinking raspberry mojitos, going out, loving London life, right in the centre of like a big metropolitan city. Meanwhile, Chris is going back to being a farmer. He ended up having a, a, a really hard time, didn't he, where he was diagnosed with ME? Yeah. Yeah, so before we met, he went backpacking around Asia, got dengue fever, uh, which is from a mosquito, and it basically means you bleed from every orifice, your ears, your eyes, your gums, everything. And he nearly died. He was in a um, hospital in Vietnam. They basically told him that he might not survive the night. When he told me the story, I just thought, God, I could never handle some. I could never handle something like that. But he just did. He lost his dad when he was twelve. His dad was the farmer, 
Right. And I think that taught him that kind of resilience and, you know, to be strong and not be scared had prepped him a little bit for that kind of situation. It's important to say he lost the farm too on his yeah. dad's passing work. So the animals had to be taken away. So that whole lifestyle that he knew yeah. was, was taken. Yeah. yeah. So he experienced loss from, yeah, 11, 12 years old. Yeah. So he kind of, I wouldn't say he'd been hardened to it, but that kind of hardship he'd gone through before that kind of everything being up in the air, which my life was very much not like that. So when I learned of him nearly dying in Asia and him losing his dad and the whole life he had on the farm disappearing and him having to like play football on a Saturday rather than riding a quad bike Mm. around the farm I just couldn't really comprehend it at all because I really had had such a really lucky life you know I still had two parents that were in love um we still lived in the childhood home I was in awe of how he understood himself and understood his life and where he kind of needed to be and then he had a burnout we were about to get on the train. We were going to London Zoo, believe it or not. And he'd been fine, like completely fine. And then we walked to the train station and he literally crumbled to the floor. It makes me feel a bit sad when I think about it because that was the most vulnerable I think I've probably seen him. And, and he didn't know what was happening. He was terrified. And he was, he was ha- I'd had panic, panic attacks in the past and he was having a panic attack. He'd been suffering from post-viral fatigue from the dengue fever. But he hadn't stopped working. And the the only way his body could make him stop was to give him a panic attack, I think. I truly believe that was his kind of, you will stop now. Yeah. And, yeah, he was in bed for nearly a year. Right. And me at this point, I was still living in London and coming home. So I was kind of coming home at the weekends and we were having dinner in bed. But that's early on in your relationship, wasn't it? So you're only a, you're only a few months in. Yeah, so, yeah. So that's so a big two, thing to happen. Yeah, two months in. I remember my dad saying to me, "Are you sure?" Because my dad hadn't met Chris properly because he was literally bedbound. He didn't know him, and he didn't know that his personality before was like a Duracell bunny. Yeah, and now literally he. He would come downstairs, get a glass of water and have to lay flat out on the kitchen floor to get the energy to go back up the stairs. And the lactic acid would be so bad in his legs that he's, he'd tell me all the time like he felt like it was acid running around his body because yeah. he was in so much pain. And, you know, your dad's girl, aren't you? Mm. So he was kind of like, are you sure, Zoe? You know, the world is kind of your oyster in London and you're back in Kent laying in bed with a boy massaging his legs. Yeah. And that sounds really nasty and he wasn't nasty. My dad was a gorgeous man, but he just wanted what was best for me and he maybe thought Chris was being lazy, I guess, which he wasn't. We decided that he was kind of getting to a stage where he wanted to go out more and he was getting these little bursts of energy and he wanted to get his kind of fitness up and get some of his life back. So we bought a spaniel puppy. He would have to, you know, walk her, do all of the things you do with a pup. And in doing so, he started training her to be a gun dog, which obviously he went shooting when he was with his dad on the farm and him being in that world 
I have never seen someone blossom so much. At the start, I wasn't involved whatsoever because I was still in London and I'd come home at the weekends and I would notice him getting brighter and it was such a joy to see. But it was never like, this could be my life. Yeah. I could just have a shotgun hanging over my arm and I could wear posh wellies and tweed. Like, I wasn't remotely interested. It was only, you know, after a few months of him doing that and he started working with the animals again and he ended up buying some sheep that I kind of my eyes twinkled a little bit and I thought, oh, hang on, I'm, I've am i always wanted a pet. I've never had a pet before. These could be my pets as well. Yeah. And that's how it started, yeah. believe it or not. And, um, yeah, and then now, God, we've got five, we just lambed 550 ewes, um, this lambing just gone, and we've got a dozen or so cattle that we carve and we've got a hell of a lot of goats that we kid and it's my full-time life now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. What was the catalyst for making the move for good? My dad died. I'd wanted to quit hairdressing for probably six months, maybe. Right. But I thought what I wanted was to buy a house with Chris, have a couple of kiddies, get married. Like, I was obsessed with being a mother. Yeah. Um, and that kind of something needing you. Yeah. I always had imaginary animals and I needed something, I wanted something that needed me. Mm. And it was ingrained in me, whether it be from my friends, my family, what I'd seen around me on telly, whatever, that that's what I needed to be happy was that family unit. And I was sure that I'd found Chris and he was going to be the one that I'd do it with. And I was earning the money to put money away for a house deposit to start that journey of the house, the babies, this, Mm. that and the other. But without the money, I wouldn't reach my dream of those things. And without hairdressing, I wouldn't have the money to do those things. So I was stuck in hairdressing, even though I wasn't that happy. Right. And then, yeah, my my dad went into hospital and ended up in intensive care. And they thought it was a superbug that had taken over his entire body. But it actually turns out he had three different types of cancer. And he'd been suffering a lot with sciatica. But it turned out that the sciatica was actually bone cancer. This was pre-COVID. This was 2018. And we basically all just moved back into my mum and dad's house. My sister was at uni. I was in London. We hadn't all lived in that house for so many years. And then it was like all going back in time into this house. But instead of the mum and dad caring for the two kids, it was three adults essentially caring for my dad five weeks later um he died at home and I'm so sorry it was grim it was grim of course it was but I I do believe that people we all have our 
lifespan and it was mm. I, I do believe it was his time he was never into the farming this is the thing that makes me absolutely wet myself laughing because obviously I've written the book now about farming and <laughs> farming is very much my life but he was never into it at all and was he into he the thought, idea of you doing it no okay he thought it was a fad he thought it was a fad of mine <laughs> he just thought it was like oh Zoe just likes playing around with the animals and if I'm doing something like we were having a really rough lambing, a really rough lambing with this ewe. And I was literally past my elbow trying to rearrange this lamb up her, yeah, yeah. you know what, to get this lamb out. And I just started wetting myself laughing. I just thought, geez, if my dad, honestly, he genuinely wouldn't believe it. <laughs> Even now, you know, years later, I just think, I, want, I do wonder what he would think. Anyway, he died and I toyed with the idea of going back to hairdressing. I was very loyal. Like when you see someone every six weeks, a, a client, and you're going through, you're literally going through IVF with them. You're going through divorces with yeah. them. You're going on, you know, cheating partners. You're going through getting diagnoses for their um, kids' behavioural problems. You're so involved with their life. Mm. And they were in, so involved with my life. I didn't feel ready to share that part of my life and I couldn't see a way that I could offer them the same service and be the same person without probably dying a bit inside and like suppressing the grief to give them the service. So yeah, I decided not to go back to the salon and I didn't know how long it would be for and I didn't have really have a clue what I was doing but I, I do genuinely feel it was the right decision and like I was like losing the fake nails and then I was losing the makeup and then I was losing like all these things to to get to the point where you know I can now hold my own on the farm and like Chris will go away and do stuff and I can handle it even now like years and years down the line there are moments where I do have a little cry and just think god is this me I don't know if this is me but I don't think that's unhealthy no not at all I think not at all I think it's a good thing sometimes to be a bit like oh could there be another option for me in life Let's talk about what you learned in that time. The things that surprised you about it. The bad things, yeah. the things that you couldn't get yeah. over. Okay, so it's probably a good time to mention I was a vegetarian at this point. No way. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I I didn't eat meat. I hadn't eaten meat probably from early teens. Um, my mum and dad were meat eaters. Um, my dad was a huge barbecue fan, always barbecuing. And he found me really annoying that I didn't just eat normal food. Like yeah. it was hard for me to be a vegetarian. <laughs> yeah. But I just, it, it, it all comes, I had food poisoning from like rotisserie chicken that you get from like a deli or whatever. Yeah. It was just easier for me to not eat meat. And then it wasn't when I met Chris and he was a meat eater, he would do a roast or something. And I'd think, oh, actually... Is it a bit weird that I don't eat meat? I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of lost why I hadn't eaten it. And it wasn't even a, a, a animal welfare situation. It was literally, I, I don't want to get food poisoning and meat is a high-risk food poisoning in my immature brain. Yeah. And, yeah, and then the lambs that he had bred were ready to go off to the abattoir. And I remember he sold them all at the market all the lambs and he had one slaughtered and butchered for for our freezer and I remember feeling like it smelt good and I was going to try a bit and I ate some and 
it had it had kind of gone full circle like I'd seen the lambs be born and now I was eating them and although it tasted good it freaked me the fuck out I was like oh that animal's gone from being a living breathing thing and it didn't feel normal and then I didn't eat meat for quite a while after that and then when I was getting more into the farming I actually thought it's fucking cool that we actually know what that animal has actually even digested Mm. We know everything. We I even got to the point where when we went to the abattoir with some lambs, I asked the guy if I could watch that end process because mm. I felt like I was giving my heart and soul to keep them animals happy and healthy. I didn't want to like fall at the last hurdle and for it to be a scary experience. And all I'd known is like um, the viral videos on Facebook you see of animals screaming in distress before they can... And we all know them. We all Mm. know those kind of like black and white um, clickbaits you get of like a really sad-looking pig or whatever. And I just needed to know. And I saw the process and I was pleasantly surprised. How do they kill a lamb? So in the UK and in the abattoir we use, there obviously are halal abattoirs and halal is when you let the animal bleed out yeah so halal is i've never seen a true halal dispatch slaughter um so the way where they do it in as it is a halal slaughterhouse but what they do is it's a stun halal killing slaughter whatever the halal part is they bless the animal as it's bleeding out. So where we go, there's probably about between five and eight lambs in a pen. Now, our animals are in pens all the time because, you know, you have to treat their feet, you have to do all sorts. So they're in pens all the time. So that part, probably not any different for them, not really a high-stress environment. Then what they do is they get... Imagine, like, giant barbecue tongs. Yeah. And they place it either side on the temples of the sheep. Yeah. And that basically stuns them, the the current, obviously. And now I, I'd asked Chris about it, and I thought there would be a degree of suffering or a few seconds where the animal is dying. Or mm, mm. I genuinely kind of was prepared emotionally that there would be a bit where I'd kind of yeah. sc- screw my face up because it was awful. But the animal went down, the, the 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 lamb, the sheep, whatever, goes down like a sack of shit, like instantaneously when yeah. these tongs, they hit the deck and they are gone. There is yeah. no brain function left there, um, which surprised me. I really thought there would be a few seconds of fear where yeah. I would feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Anyway, they're then hoisted up onto a pulley system the next stage, I guess, is their throat is cut open and they're left to bleed out and then they're obviously skinned, gutted, all of those things. And I was so shocked and I was... I felt really privileged, I think, to have been able to see that because majority of meat eaters probably don't know how the animal's even reared, let alone privy to how it's died. 
And I felt really privileged and that really shocked me. I thought I'd be like vomiting and (laughs) absolutely scarred for life and I'd feel like I was in a Saw movie and I'd be running out of there screaming, becoming a vegan or something. I just didn't, I didn't expect to be in the truck on the way home feeling like I was really lucky to have experienced that. You talk extensively in the book about bringing, like lambing, bringing lambs into the world, helping them to breathe and live and bond with their moms and you care about animals how do you reconcile I suppose that aspect of like each animal being unique and individual and knowing them and it didn't come naturally right it took a lot of work probably a couple of things number one is don't ever name anything that you might eat right (laughs) I was gonna say do you not name it's so simple but don't ever do that because we're very lucky because it's just Chris and I any animal on the farm, if we decided it wasn't going to go into the food chain, it wouldn't. We'd just keep it. Yeah. We've got loads of freeloaders on the farm. Yeah. Loads of freeloaders that we just have for enjoyment. We don't have a boss that tells us yeah. production yeah. rate is down or whatever. So that freedom's nice. And another thing is if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it. And if someone else does it, it might not be, the welfare might not be as high as us. It doesn't matter how food production gr- goes, we will always eat meat in this country and we always will eat British produce in yeah. this country. And there will always be farmers, whether there's less of them, who knows. And I kind of feel like if I'm doing it, I can sleep easy that the people that eat our meat are having grass-fed, incredibly high wel- welfare, you know, limited use of antibiotics, all of these things I can guarantee. And if someone else was doing it, maybe their standards would be a little bit different. Their experience at the abattoir might be... Do you know, you don't Mm. know for definite, whereas I know for definite. Yeah, that was a big thing for me of, if I'm not doing it, someone else is going to do it. It almost felt like I was doing a duty to the country, which sounds... Now, coming out of a hairdresser's mouth sounds really weird, but especially during lockdown people were walking past our fields and asking us because they were terrified of going into the supermarket if they could buy their meat from us right on the whole lockdown for us and building that kind of community of we're the local farmers and Mm. they're going to support us that was a really lovely lovely moment for Chris and I to feel like we had a duty to feed them and it goes back to that feeling of me wanting to feel needed and I'm sure that's deep rooted. Yeah. <laughs> that whole like part of community, you know, it, it led to us actually, you know, building a cutting room and we do sell the meat off the farm now, but I found a purpose and the part of hairdressing I loved was the social chat. Farming's very solitary, it's just Chris and I. And then during lockdown be it with three meters between us we were chatting to the neighbors and we were talking about farming and I had that kind of social thing and I think my dad being like the real well you're not going to be a hairdresser now so you've got to find a different life mm. then mixed with lockdown I was kind of like well I've got the social bit of it now and obviously I was running um, my page on social media and chatting to people through there as well it felt like everything had kind of come together and that's where I feel now. The 
there's a line in the book which really struck me about, you know, your learnings about farming and how death is such a huge part of it. Huge. You know, it's, it's completely huge. And you have a choice when you're farming. And I'm not just talking about death as in slaughtering. I mean, death as in just animals uh, dying yeah. all the time and you having to keep animals alive. Um, you have a choice where you have to focus on the life. Yeah. You have to just focus on yeah. keeping people alive. Yeah. I thought that was really, especially in the context of your dad as well, just the kind of like you have to choose with grief. You have to choose to keep living, you know, to keep focusing on living. Yeah. And I think there have been points where I've, the parallels between my, I guess you'd say mental health with grief and loss yeah. and depression and all those kind of things. Like, if you were suffering the biggest loss in your life, why would you go into an industry where you're surrounded by loss? Whether it mm. be animals, as you say, accidentally dying and, and that kind of loss, mm. or sending them to the abattoir. Why did I do that? And I often yeah. think about it. And it's because I can, on the whole, control or limit the death in farming. Whereas There's in a control aspect. There is a bit, isn't wow, there? That's so, deep. like, my dad died... And there was nothing, I, like the cancer was ravaging his body. Like there was nothing in the world I could have done to make yeah. him live. No matter what drugs I gave him or whatever. And of course there's animals that there's no hope in saving them. But I will mm. always give it a fucking good go. Like mm. even if I'm mm. syringing water into like a comatose animal's mouth, like I will always give it a go. Chris isn't like a a hard, harsh person. Like he, he can be quite soft, but... I have given a lot of animals chances that he maybe wouldn't have even tried because he didn't think there was a hope. It's like you have the patience as well. You kind of there's something in you that yeah. is hopeful to try and make it work. And some of the things you describe about how you've kept like lambs alive and like having to stick pins in their stomach when they've got too much gas and like the learning, like watching YouTube videos on the go yeah. and trying to keep these little animals alive. It's fascinating. And I, I think it comes back to. Um, the control thing, doesn't it? Like, I have a shot of making something live. So we had a situation where someone had thrown garden waste over the fence into the farm. And some of our lambs, they, they weren't teeny tiny, they were, you know, four or five months old lambs, had eaten this garden waste and it had poisoned them. That death was traumatising. They were, like... Animals aren't very vocal about pain. Like sheep will mm. give birth and not make a sound. I've had yeah. to, you know, help get this gigantic lamb out of a ewe where, you know, she's been practically splitting and she hasn't made a sound. She might be grinding mm. her teeth, but she hasn't made a sound. And these lambs were screaming in pain. And our local newspaper contacted Chris and I and said, we'd like to run a story. It's good for awareness about, you know, not chucking garden waste, mm. blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay, fine, you know, anything for a awareness like fly tipping is a huge problem where we are that it's amazing yeah they ran the story and they put it on their facebook page like the torrent of abuse that i got she's going to kill the animals anyway so what does she care that they're dying she's going right. to slit she's going to slit their throat and i just thought oh my god like the awareness mm. really is is not there at all i'm keeping these animals alive and keeping them healthy and not suffering yeah, at the end of the day, they're going to go into the food chain. But that time when they're with me, I have con full control over that time. Mm. That period of... And because they're grass-finished 
the, the lambs are only fed on grass, they're with us for a lot longer period. So you do have a, a long time. How long do they have? So they'll be nearly a year old. I thought that lamb that we eat was a lamb. But actually, if I showed you a lamb that was going to the abattoir tomorrow, a lot of people would say it was a sheep. I think a lot of people don't think at all about no. the food that they have no, on their plate. No. And they don't when they're getting a lamb boona or a lamb curry or something, they don't ever, ever equate that meat with with no. the live baby no. animal, essentially. No. And I think that's really interesting. And I think you should know every stage. Yeah. You know, you should under if you're going to eat meat, that's your choice. Absolutely. But know what happens, yeah. like know how it works. That's how and I it's feel. Co- it's good to raise awareness of that. I think it's very good to kind of raise awareness of of the reality of what goes on. It's um, not just me either. It's everything. Yeah. Even Every if you step chew, of fruit. Yeah, fruit. Yeah. I mean, apples, banana, everything. Where does they come from? How are they I getting to your plate? I wouldn't yeah. have had a clue. I've had to consciously yeah. ask questions in the market and ask farmers questions. And one of the bits of ground that our sheep graze is a, a strawberry farm. I knew that strawberries were in season during Wimbledon, but I wouldn't have known where the where the strawberry season started and ended Mm. I wouldn't have had a clue (laughs) and I don't think many people do because you can get strawberries in Tesco all year round yeah it's not just they're just a bit sweeter during one period and I, I I do feel quite passionately about that now I think where I've been so excited by the learning process I almost want to give that to other people so I do use my social media page to talk about maybe slightly uncomfortable food production related things I really would like little kiddies to understand even basically like that a McDonald's beef burger comes from a cow yeah just something so simple like it's just so I don't think it's even the parents fault I just think it's like a generational thing that's just got worse and worse over time as animals and meat has become industrialised, factory farmed, it's become so available mm. that that kind of link you have to make to the farming aspect is just gone, isn't it? It's yeah. Like, what's the ratio, I suppose, of farms like yours as opposed to the big factory farms in the UK? Are you rare? Um, Are you more common now? It's more common now. Right. There's like a revolution happening at the moment. Tell me. Tell me so about like, the revolution. So there's something called... Cool. It's become a buzzword now, and it's called regenerative farming so it's using old school ways of farming to up your production but also it's all about soil health and soil health obviously then has a knock-on for absolutely everything I'm actually going to a festival the end of this month which they call like the farming Glastonbury a load of agricultural people having a drink and going to talks and things like that of basically how farming's changing at the moment. Mm. And it's been happening for years and years, but it's suddenly got to a point now where like your average Joe farmer is understanding a bit more about how farms don't need to just like plow huge amounts of fertilizer on, you know, they can use the sheep to graze it and then the sheep are going to poo and then the poo mm. will do the same as the fertilizer and it's kind of i feel it's it's taken the price of fertilizer and things like that to shoot through the sky and diesel and everything to shoot up for the message about 
how we need to farm to get yeah. out there. Now it's going to benefit not only the soil and, mm. you know, the environment around us, but it will actually mean the longevity of farming. We went last year and I came back obsessive with dung beetles. I mean, do you think the girl <laughs> in Soho with a mojito would be obsessed with dung beetles? <laughs> I thought a dung beetle was on David Attenborough when they're just rolling the bit. Yeah, yeah me too. But, you know, we healthy soil has dung beetles in the UK. And me and Chris came back from the festival and we were literally rifling through cow pats to find these dung beetles and getting, like, overexcited when we find one with a blue belly. Like, it, it is exciting. And it's interesting you say about the whole kind of factory farm versus it's such a good time to kind of ask the question because it's, it's at a tipping, Ooh, it's yeah. at a tipping yeah. point. Yeah, and I know a lot of people feel like farming's like this real closed off community and I think in a lot of places it is isn't it I think it's getting to the point now with social media and with television I think it's a really exciting time to someone listening right who maybe is feeling a bit like you were at the end of your hairdressing where you just didn't really feel inspired and so much of life is just kind of going through the motions and doing what you feel like you should do because society or culture has told you that. To anyone listening who might want to step out of that and do something different, what would you say to them? You've changed your life so drastically, I suppose. The best thing, I think, is if something excites you, to listen to that. So a lot of people, they'll have their hobby and their career and they get excited for the weekends to do the hobby but is there a way you can make that hobby into your career right like be a bit creative with it and you just never know because I understand that you you need money to live and especially if you have people relying on you like kiddies and that you need money to live and feed them um but if there's something that gets you that excited isn't it worth a go to kind of work out a way you could turn that into your career or at least a money-making side hustle. What is the most beautiful thing about your job? Being able to live simply. This is so cliche, but I've had to allow myself to feel things a lot deeper than I ever did before. I don't set an alarm. We sleep with the blinds open and we wake up when the sun comes up. And in the winter, when it gets dark at five, we finish work at five. So we're well rested in the winter because we're working shorter hours. But then in the summer, we work longer hours and get as much as we can done. And it's just like, that's just our life. So you're more connected to nature. Connected, yes. And that's what I mean by simply. I mean, I'm really obsessive with with fungi at the moment. Like I'm listening to podcasts about fungi. Before, I would sit on the tube and I would be like, I don't know, Daily Mail, scrolling through this, that and the other. And it would be very surface level. Whereas now, I can feel things a lot more deeply. And I, yeah, I don't really care about gossip and stuff like that now. It's a different life. Zoe, thank you so, so much. Pleasure, pleasure. 
do please rate, review and subscribe to Changes. It is so appreciated. And if you fancy sharing it on social media too, that would be amazing. The more people we can get listening to these episodes, the better we want to tell our stories far and wide. Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. Thanks for listening. Thank you.